we can so easily live such presumptuous lives as if life is a series of events in our diary and then something happens that shatters that complacency and awakens us to the harsh reality of life. Ravindra was travelling on a packed train near the city of Gal in Sri Lanka. Suddenly people around him started screaming and running in terror. He himself takes up the story. I didn't still quite know what was going on. I didn't know what it could be, but I saw a lot of terror on people's faces. Suddenly I felt a shunt and the train moved off the tracks. I could see it being detached from the other carriages. And then as the water started to rush in, the, the carriage began to tilt, at which point I, felt, I fell against one of the doorways and water started to fill up, up to my neck. The second wave hit about half an hour later with an almighty crash. This wave took up, it must have been 85% of the horizon, and it was coming straight for us. It wasn't a wave as such, like a curl of surf. It was a wall, just a cliff face of water coming straight for us. The second wave hit the train as it was at this angle, and it sort of pushed the train inland to the point where it got wedged against the house. And I was able to jump from the top of this train to the top of the house and climb up as high as possible onto the roof. Ravinda decides to swim for it because he was afraid that that house would also be swept away. He says, There was a sea of dead bodies, children and women mainly, and I had to clear a path through the water by pushing those people away and heading as far inland as possible. When he got to dry land, he met an English-speaking Sri Lankan woman who offered to let him stay with her uncle, who lived nearby. Ravindra was a survivor of the tsunami that struck Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Thailand on Boxing Day 2004. It killed an estimated 230,000 people. We hear about such things, we read about such things, but still, often we're not awoken to the harshness of life until it comes to our door. Back in 1982, when I was a teenager, I was looking forward to one of my best friends coming over from Nova Scotia to stay with us for the six weeks of the summer. And I remember getting home from school and my mother saying, you better sit down, I have something to tell you. Paul has died in his sleep last night. There is no reason given as yet for his death. And I remember leaving the house and running off down to the sea with tears running down my face and throwing stones at the sea. How could this happen? Paul had never had a day's illness in his life. Why had this happened? God, why? What do you say when someone asks you why God permits suffering? Do you say anything? Do you mouth an apology on God's behalf? What can we say? What can we do? Over these next few weeks of Lent, we are considering the book of Job, a book full of questions and suffering, and it does not allow for easy answers. A book that expresses pain and calls us to grow up 
in our faith. The book of Job is considered part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Listeners are encouraged not so much to learn how to be wise, but rather that they seek to get wise. Seek wisdom while she may still be found. In order to make this wisdom memorable, images and stories are painted in stark black and white terms. Much of the genre is written as poetry and that's the way we need to read it. The drama and pathos of Job is presented in two distinct parts. The action happens in the first two chapters that we will examine today and then the remaining 40 chapters is a dialogue between Job and his friends who arrive at Job's side attempting to explain what has happened. Although the source, the cause, ever-present God remains silent through this painful dialogue until right at the end of the story. So in chapter 1 we have the opening scene, Job comes onto the stage. Job the virtuous, the prosperous, the religious. To the reader of that time his prosperity relates to his virtue. And then, all of a sudden, one day it all comes crashing down like a house of cards. Have you ever had that happen? Where you thought that life was going along smoothly and one day everything came crashing down. You've seen it happen to other people and therefore you know it can happen to you. But you and I build our illusions of security and one day it comes crashing down. That is what happened to Job. On that day in Job's life, the warring enemies attacked the Sabaeans and they killed all the donkeys and all the servants taking care of those donkeys. Before you knew it, there was a lightning storm that wiped out all of the sheep. Before you knew it, the Chaldeans attacked and killed all the camels. And then all ten children of Job were having a party and all the children and grandchildren were there when suddenly a storm came roaring through and shattered the whole house and everyone who was in it. All ten of Job's children were killed. A servant comes to tell Job of all of this. Job experiences enormous despair and inner pain and we read he says, I came into this world with nothing and I will leave this world with nothing. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And the Bible adds, Job did not blame God for the disasters that happened. But this is not the end. For a short time later, in chapter 2, the angels were all up before the council of God and God asked Satan, What have you been doing lately, Satan? Satan replied, I've been roaming around the earth. God said, Have you seen my servant Job down there? He is a really upright man. He worships me and avoids evil and has stood up to your test. Satan replied, yes, but you didn't let me take his health away. You let me take his health away and I will bring that man to his knees. You wouldn't let me touch his body, but when you do, that will make him crack. God says, go ahead. So Satan went down to earth to find Job. And Satan gave Job this disease, and Job is covered with sores from head to foot. And we see Job sitting on a rubbish dump, taking a piece of broken pottery, and with it scraping his sores. His wife comes to the rubbish dump and says, Job, curse God, curse God and die. But Job says, no, I'm not going to curse God and die. The Lord brings good in our lives. The Lord brings bad in our lives. Praise be the name of God. I will not curse God. 
And so Job does not blame God for the disasters which happened in his life. Now the starkness of all this is not easy for us to get our heads around. But there's two things immediately for our better understanding that we need to grasp. First of all, that material prosperity in much of the Old Testament is seen as a blessing of God. Of sons, of cattle, of land, of good health. Then secondly, in Job culture, it was acceptable for a good man to claim to be good. There was no cynicism or doomed Calvinism. Job is the epitome of goodness. So how easy it is for us to say, I've been blessed by God when things have gone well. God has heard me because things worked out the way I wanted to. But what happens when bad things happen? When terrorists blow up innocent people? Where is God when young children die? And so the thought crosses our minds. If God lets these sort of things happen, what's the point of believing? For if it appears that God doesn't necessarily come every time we call, doesn't necessarily punish our enemies and prosper our friends, doesn't necessarily fix our problems and keep us healthy, doesn't necessarily turn all red lights to green, What are we to think then? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is so intricately intricately involved in my life, how come he allows brutal violence to be meted out? Something that Rowan Williams was admitting is difficult for Christians in his discussion with Richard Dawkins this week. Battered and bruised, confused perhaps in our faith, might we become disillusioned? Barbara Taylor speaks of a God who exists on the other side of our disillusionment. Disillusionment, she writes, is not all bad. The loss of illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God, and while it is almost always painful, it is not a bad thing to lose the lies we have mistaken for the truth. Disillusioned, we glimpse our own relative size in the universe and see that no human being can say who God should be or how God should act. We review our requirements of God and recognise them as our fictions, our own frail shelters against the vast night sky. Disillusioned, we find out what is not true and thereby are set free to seek what is, if we dare. There's a folk tale from Central Europe that perhaps sits well alongside these questions. A peasant woman discovered her only horse was missing. Her neighbours come to her and say, What a terrible calamity! Your son now cannot plough your fields without a horse. The woman responds, Who knows? Two days later the horse returns, but this time it's accompanied by a second horse, a wild horse. The neighbours rejoice. What a blessing, they exclaim. Now you have two horses. Again, the peasant woman answers, who knows? A few weeks later, her son is out riding the new horse when it throws him off, breaking his leg and crippling him permanently. The neighbours are quick to offer their sympathy. What a terrible thing. Your son will always walk with a limp. She smiles. Not long afterwards, the king's men come through conscripting men for a service in a bloody war. When they come to the sun and see his limp, they do not take him. 
And so the story goes on. Such a story and such a passage as we've read in Job perhaps invites us to, towards Stoicism. Is Christianity about being stoical? Looking at the definition of Stoicism, Stoic is a member of an originally Greek school of philosophy founded by Zeno about 300 years before Christ, believing that God determined everything for the best and that virtue is sufficient for happiness. Its later Roman form advocated the calm acceptance of all occurrences as the unavoidable result of divine will or of the natural order. But is this not indifference? Does this not invite indifference? And what place do we as Christians have for indifference, we who believe in a crucified Christ? These matters are are so grave, they push me back into my roots. Let me tell you about the Heidelberg Catechism, put together by German reformers in 1563. It opens with two questions concerning our comfort in life and death. First one, what is your comfort in life and death? And secondly, how many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? Now, I'm not advocating that we adopt this creed for our church, that we replace our core values with this. But there was an answer in there that resonated and might be helpful as we consider this first couple of chapters of Job. This is one of the answers given to one of the catechistic questions. I trust in him so completely that I have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. Moreover, whatever evil he sends upon me in this troubled life, he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it being almighty God and is determined to do it being a faithful father. Strong meat. There are three things, three points here I'd like to make about this. First of all, given the pervasiveness, the sovereignty of God's love and goodness, this sentence makes me consider whether I know the difference always between good and evil. Surely only it is God, sovereign in love and goodness, who always knows good from evil. The second thing, as the sentence says, God sends the evil, God permits the devil to sift Job. In my reading of the Bible, evil has never been understood to be the equal opposite to God. Once again, God is sovereign in love and goodness over all things, including evil. So this sentence goes on to declare that God will turn evil that comes to me for my good. And so for me it follows that if God sends evil, I am challenged to commit myself to being on the lookout for how in all things God is at work for my good. And finally, this same answer summons me to an attitude and a disposition of humility and patience in the face of extreme difficulty and danger. But God is in charge and God's providential care is to be trusted. With the rush of events in these first two chapters, and the simplicity of Job's response, perhaps the question this week is not, why did this happen? Or why did God permit this to happen? 
Possibly a more helpful question is, how shall I then live? That is, perhaps God is challenging my ways of making decisions, my easy comfort with my privileged life. Interesting that liberation theologians, struggling with the poverty that surrounded them, they make the point that we can argue till we're blue in the face about where the origins of evil come. The reality is that evil is around. And the challenge for us as Christians is to say, what are we going to do about it? Stephen Hawking, as you know, is the astrophysicist at Cambridge University, one of the most intelligent men on earth. Unfortunately, Hawking is also afflicted with ALS syndrome. This will eventually take his life. And he's been confined to a wheelchair for years, being able to do very little for himself. Too weak to write, to feed himself, to comb his hair. All this is done for him. And yet, this most dependent of men has escaped invalid status. His personality, his intelligence shine through the messy details of his existence. And Hawking has said that before he became ill, he hadn't a great interest in life. He called it pointless. He drank a little too much. And then he learned that he had ALS syndrome and was not expected to live more than two years. The ultimate effect of that diagnosis, beyond its initial shock, was positive. He claimed to have been happier after he was afflicted than before. How come? Hawking himself says, when one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one has. Put another way, to someone who thought he would soon die, everything takes on meaning. A sunrise, a walk in the park, the laughter of children. Suddenly, each small pleasure becomes precious. Although it will change, as we read further, Job's initial response in these first two chapters on facing catastrophic loss and suffering is acceptance, patient endurance, and a determination to trust God. We call such people saints. Such people acknowledge that their lives are utterly in God's hands and there's no presumption whatsoever about life. And in everything, there's learning and grace. And so, in this season of Lent, let us recognise that along with self-control, patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. For as night follows day, we all will face suffering at some points or for some periods in our lives. And so as we move in this period towards Easter, let us work harder at listening to our lives, the pain as well as the joy. And let us note that half of the gospel story is given up to the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not react hastily towards difficulty and suffering, as Job's wife invites him to do, but to be patient and persevere and to hold to a determination to trust God. For then, we might just meet the suffering Christ and realise that God uses everything for his glory. Amen.